Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Gangster rap singer Tupac Shakur died tonight in a Las Vegas hospital. The controversial MTV award winner who sold millions of records was on life support for the last six days after he was shot up in a drive-by ambush. Kamala has fished with a backheader off the post. Tinkler came off the it. They've got it. Williams got in there. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller. With me, of course, is Jonathan Wilson. And with us today is Mark Gleeson, journalist and commentator, contributor to the BBC, Reuters and ESPN, among others, and is the official archivist for African football for FIFA. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, we go back to 1996 to the Africa Cup of Nations final that finished South Africa 2, Tunisia nil. Mark, why have you chosen this game? Well, as a South African, of course, it's uh, arguably the, the biggest footballing triumph that this country has uh, conjured up, unfortunately, because we should have had a lot more than that, given our uh, our size, our potential, our economic uh, prowess or strength on the continent. To have been African champions just once is um, fairly disappointing. And it's become uh, it's become almost a, uh, a more mythical game here in South Africa. You know, with each passing anniversary, it remains the, the, the one big triumph. And so it's sort of gained in stature and grown into this mythical game uh, over the years. So um, having covered that tournament, having been at the final, um, having watched all the subsequent tournaments as well. It's, uh, it certainly is a, a wonderful memory. And I think, uh, you know, a, a game where, where a, a lot of coming of age was achieved for, for South African football and for South African society, I think. Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting time in South Africa's history, as Mark says there, Jonathan. And what, what were your memories of, of that tournament? Because obviously it's a tournament that you love Africa Cup of Nations. You've, covered it um, many times um, since uh, this tournament. What, what were your memories? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the time, my, my awareness of it was was fairly limited. I mean, I, you know, I think mm. we, we sort of, I, and clearly I'm speaking as an outsider here, but you know, we knew about the Rugby World Cup in 95, and this seemed like like football's moment. Um, I, and sort of, I, you know, I think the, the vague sense we got was that this was almost you know, more the population was concerned by it. So when I first started going to the Cup of Nations in, in 2002, and even then, you know, 
and, and again, this is this is somebody from the outside looking in. And I remember the hotel in Bamako, which I think eight of the teams or maybe seven of the teams stayed in. And the South Africans there, you, could, you know, very direct comparison to, to other nations. And they just looked more professional than everybody mm-hmm. else. And my assumption then was that they would go on and to, to dominate African football for the next decade, two decades, whatever. And yet it, it, it hasn't come to pass. And so, you know, I think as Mark says, 96 now, it now stands this moment of, of sort of what what probably should have been, but but hasn't been. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I was always surprised that looking at this to find out that South Africa had only won just the single Cup of Nations tournament, of course. Um, and it was this one. But uh, Mark, I'm right in saying that Kenya were originally the hosts for this tournament, but it did end up in South Africa. Yes, and all and all very hastily arranged, which sort of spoke to which spoke to the country's potential because they really didn't have to do much to um, to to host the tournament. And usually, for an African country to put the Cup of Nations together is a, is a massive affair, you know, massive infrastructure build, etc. But um, we had the massive Soccer City football stadium already in place, and then they used rugby venues um, for the other matches. The the, the the rugby stadium in Durban, Kings Park, which is still there. Um, was already being used by domestic football as well, being shared between the rugby side and, and the local football team. So that, um, that that was fairly easy. The Bloemfontein Stadium, which was the you know Bloemfontein is a bit of a cradle of of uh, the Afrika- of Afrikanerdom and um, football, not particularly. I wouldn't say welcome, but you know, it's not. It's not. It has it, in those in the pre-apartheid or in the in the apartheid days, it wasn't really given a great shape by the by the municipal or the provincial authorities. Um, it was a little rougher, I think, um, apartheid and football in the Free State. So it was mm-hmm. fairly symbolic that the Free State Stadium in Bloemfontein was one of the venues as well. The Port Elizabeth, um, which didn't really have a football team at the time, so the infrastructure was there and. Um, you know, putting the hand up and 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 taking over from Kenya, I think, was seen um, around Africa as a very exciting moment. I think a chance now to go to South Africa, to go to the sort of mythical country previously cut off from the rest of the continent. Uh, you know, an opportunity to go and have a look and 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 to take in what at that stage I think was sort of you know Africa's Europe uh, mm-hmm. with you know the, the ready-made highways and airports and infrastructure, etc. And so um, I think Africa looked forward. With great anticipation to the uh, to the tournament, uh, South Africa was excited about hosting it. I don't think so much the football fans because they, you know, there's always been this discord between yeah. South Africa and the rest of the continent, um, and 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 as a result, uh, African football is not as big a deal as it perhaps is for you know for a, 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 an English side to qualify to play in Europe, for example. But um, there was you know there was interest and the interest grew very quickly, and I think the interest was particularly also given a bit of a boost by rugby success uh, as, as you mentioned earlier this was this was soccer's opportunity to to do what rugby had done at the rugby world cup the year previously and i think you can draw the analogy of white and black white being the rugby being the white sport um soccer being the sport of the of the black majority and this was and this was the chance for 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 black sport and black south africans to sort of establish themselves on the world stage as uh, rugby and the white society had done uh, a year earlier on the rugby field. And can you give us you know, sort of some kind of idea of of what football was like in South Africa at the time? I and mean, we had Ian Hawkey on a few weeks ago talking about that first competitive game against Zimbabwe. But I mean, it'd been multiracial from 1978. Is is, is that right? 
Yes, I think soccer was always a great leader in in sort of breaking down racial barriers in South Africa, and it's quite, and it's quite ironic uh, how it juxtapositioned with what was happening in society. You know, uh, blacks took the lead in football basically from 1978 onwards. And what really happened was that the um, in, before 78 there were there were three different leagues, all. Um, based on color. You had uh, the National Football League, which was whites only. It had a, it had a lot of uh, expat Britons coming in the, in, in, the, uh, in the late 60s and early 70s when there wasn't much money to be made. The likes of George Best, Bobby Moore, Gordon Banks, uh, pretty much the 66 whole England World Cup side, Alan Ball, Martin Peters, all came to play for South African clubs in the summer to earn a little bit of extra money. Um, something that certainly would not uh, be allowed today, um, and then and then you had the Black League, which was the National Professional Soccer League, and then you had um, the mixed race, the Coloured and Indian League, which was called the Federation League. So they all they all uh, went they played separately, had absolutely nothing to do with each other. Um, legally, were not allowed to compete against each other. And then in 74, 75, the government allowed sort of interracial sports. So they had an SA Games. South Africa couldn't go to the Olympic Games in Munich. So the government organized the South Africa Games where the whites took on the blacks, took on the coloreds, took on the Indians. So they had this bizarre football tournament um, in 73, 74, when um, you had these, all, these, these racially made up football teams. Um, and that was the first contact and very exciting at that time for everybody concerned because, you know, the, I think particularly white football was well aware of the huge potential and massive interest in the black community. And eventually the white league sort of started to, it, it never really got great traction and it was financially battling, not not too many sponsors, etc. And they looked across the fence at the black league and thought, no, well, let's go and join in with these guys. And the Black League essentially swallowed up the White League, which was very ironic in 1978, which was you know in the deep dark days of apartheid. So you had uh, you had an organisation there with um, black leadership, white membership, um, and that was really at at, uh, at odds with what was happening uh, in society. And th- there were very many examples thereafter of football kind of leading the way in breaking down barriers. Uh, for example, the the biggest white soccer team of the 60s, 70s, and 80s in Johannesburg was called Highlands Park. Um, they Eventually, the, the owner sort of uh, wanted to get rid of the team. He was battling a little bit financially, and he sold it to a black man, to a black football player, to Joe Mosono, uh, one of the great South African football players who made a fair amount of money playing in North America with uh, Pelé at New York Cosmos, amongst others. And there's just the symbolism of you know a black man buying the biggest and most popular white football team in what was then 1981-82 was absolutely massive, you know, I mean, massive for the confidence of this, you know, badgered, beaten down black population. Um, he was a huge role model, as you can expect. And uh, and football gave them, gave them some, gave, you know, that community a lot of confidence at a, at a very dark time. So football was always a little bit at, at odds with uh, the apartheid society. And, and I think very proudly, um, broke a lot of barriers long before the politicians did um, and long before sporting sanctions and other and other um, um, sanctions, you know, forced the change, forced the hand of the government. So, so one, of, one of the other things that Ian Hawkey mentioned when he was talking about that, that, that first game, which was, you know, in, in uh, late 92 as a qualifier for the 94 Cup of Nations when South Africa went to Zimbabwe and, and, and lost 4-1, 
and he he suggested there was um, a sort of misplaced sense uh, within South African football that that it, 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 it sort of overestimated itself that its league was was perceived as being good in African terms, uh, and uh, it was you know it was a it was a shock to go to Zimbabwe and find out that team was going to get hammered four one. So by ninety six, is is that sort of uh, is that arrogance still still there, or is there a more realistic sort of perception of, of its of its position? Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with that assertion, and I was there at the time. I, I remember uh, you must remember South Africa's first um, taste of football came in the July, the June July of ninety two. Within days of being accepted back into FIFA, Cameroon came on a three uh, match tour. Um, and that was pretty even, you know. And it was it, it, we we were well aware at that time. It was a it was a fairly a pickup Cameroon side. It had about half of the half of the, the regulars were missing, um, and they brought Roger Miller along for a little bit of a show. I mean, he must have been about forty four by then, you know. Um, and and so and so it, it, it was a little bit of an exhibition pickup team. And you know, South Africa had its best side out on the park in the three games. Um, South Africa won the first with a disputed penalty sort of a hometown decision in the opening game. They lost the second one uh, and they drew the third. Um, and so it was obvious that this wasn't going to be as easy as as we thought. But the, what I remember about that Zimbabwe game was it was much more the pre-match tactics of the Zimbabwean coach, Reinhard Fabisch, who made a very big deal about how big South Africa was and how they were going to give us, you know, how Zimbabwe were really fearing what was coming. And and I thought he just played it absolutely brilliantly. And so that was a factor in the perceived arrogance of South Africa. But to my memory, that was more sort of stoked up by the Zimbabweans and, and, and done as a very clever ruse. And... Also, that Zimbabwean team of 1992 is without doubt the best side they ever had. And that match, I mean, it was by, at, at half time, I, I was sort of rubbing my hands. I was taking pictures there. So I'm rubbing my hands on the side of the pitch saying, well, we, you know, we're going to win this one. Um, <laughs> and, and we lost 4-1 in the end. Peter and Globo had just the most amazing second half. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was – it. I'm not sure there was a great South African arrogance. Um, I'm not being hyper uh, defensive here, but it, it was one of those games where they played it again a couple of days later. It would have been a lot, a lot different. Um, but our, our team was a little shell shocked. Um, we then went to Nigeria and played a World Cup qualifier and got another four goals there. Um, so that first six months of competition between. The second half of 1992 was a real eye-opener for, for uh, South African football, just in terms of not being um, big boys on the continent and having a lot to learn. So certainly going into 96, there was not a lot of confidence. And um, that, was, that, was, that was even after Nigeria, of course, um, did, decided not mm. to come and compete. And Nigeria, by that stage, were way and above the best team on the continent. So even with Nigeria not being there, I don't remember South Africa going into that tournament um, with, uh, with big boots. I, 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 think, um, I think they, were, you know, they, they, they weren't sure what was, what was coming. Mm-hmm. I don't know, we should just sort of talk about Nigeria and, and why they weren't there. So, I mean, they were the defending champions. And then do you want to explain why, why they withdrew at the last minute? 
Yeah, they, they, um, they had executed a dissident. I think his name was Ken Sarawiwa. I, I, I would have to check that. Um, yeah, he was, he was the, a, the novelist, yeah. And, and, and he was executed by the military regime, which was headed by Sonia Bacha. And Nelson Mandela condemned the execution. That, that was the long and short of it. And Abacha, um, you know, uh, in, in a moment of um, in a little, in a little, in a little fit of, of whatever, um, withdrew his football team from 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 the Cup of Nations, which is a great pity to for for some wonderful footballers. Uh, you know, Austin Okocha in those days. I think Kanu had just got into the side or was just about to get into the team. Um, they were really, really exciting side in, uh, in, in 1995, 96, and um, they, they were overwhelming favourites for that tournament. But, uh, but a bunch of withdrew the side because basically Mandela had criticised the, 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 the execution, judicial execution, I should add. Yeah, because it was uh, the first time that the tournament well, was going to be 16 teams. It was 12 uh, in, in the previous tournament, but it would end up with just the 15, of course. So, so you know, a decent-sized tournament um, that South Africa were hosting. Uh, and we'll talk more uh, about the match after a quick break. Beautiful tackle. Racing through, there's a great chance. That's it! Williams! Two goals in two minutes, and this man remains remarkably calm. The substitute has had a glorious finish. It has put South Africa right out of sight. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.
Jack Mates Happy Hour is back for a brand new season. It's the podcast where we talk to some of the most exciting people in the world, from Ricky Gervais. In some ways, fame makes you a better person. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God's watching me. But I, I know someone with Everyone a Everyone else is. <laughs> <laughs> to undercover police officers. Can you see the fading scar there, gentlemen? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I, yeah. That's where I was stabbed in the neck by a drug dealer once. Or... We just talk about whatever's making us laugh right now. When you think back to school kids' banter, like, it's well funny because of how immature it is. We had yeah. this teacher called Mr. McGibbon, and he had this big cushion that he was teaching us how to rugby tackle on. He just ran up to it, rugby tackled it, but landed on top of it, and one of the kids shouted, It's not your wife, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> Listen to Jack Mate's Happy Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Jack Mate's Happy Hour is a Stakhanov production. Welcome back to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. So, Mark, I mean, you, you spoke about South Africa not being um, particularly confident going into the match. It was very understandable. In their opening game, they face Cameroon, a side that, that everyone had known, obviously, in Europe, perhaps the 1990 World Cup had really highlighted them. Uh, they were there in in '94, didn't do so well, and they would go on and qualify again in, um, in 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 World Cups beyond. So they were one of the big names uh, of the tournament, and South Africa dispatched them three nil. Seemed like a perfect start. Yeah, so it was a, it was it needed that early goal to kind of change the the whole thing, you know. And it came in the first fifteen minutes from Phil Massinger, and by halftime, South Africa was two 0 up and 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 cantering away. It was a wonderful performance that day by a player called John Mashweo, who mm. was never really uh, known across um, across the African continent, but arguably one of the finest uh, finest footballers of his generation, and uh, he eventually played for Fenerbahce, so he was you know he was a decent footballer, but he, he was he was already in his late twenties, early thirties when he became an, an international footballer, and um, he he perhaps didn't have the uh, the stage that uh, his talent deserved. But he ran the he ran the the game that day, and uh, it was a massive crowd as well. Um, and what was quite what was quite heartening and quite uh, unusual was it was quite mixed that day. You know, usually football crowds in South Africa from Basically, the time of the merger of the league, seventy-eight, there was a there was a sort of a white flight from stadiums, and you, with each passing season, there were fewer and fewer white people who would go to watch domestic football matches. A lot of that football got transferred as well to the black townships, which were sort of a, a no-go area for whites who feared for their for their safety. And even the white teams um, of those days, Arcadia. Shepherds from Pretoria, Wits University from Johannesburg got very poor crowds for their home matches and uh, and really suffered financially. So um, to see a mixed crowd, people of all races, at the beginning of the '96 tournament was some was it was a real eye opener to walk into that stadium that day and see so many so many non-black people to use that phrase um, coming to football, and that got better and better as the tournament went on. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember many of my contemporaries um, who had absolutely no football uh, interest whatsoever, you know, asking for tickets. I was, I was absolutely <laughs> bowled over by, you know, do you really want to go to football? You've got it. You have ne- you know, you've never been to football in your life before. So it became a, 
it became a real potential unifier in the same way that uh, that rugby had uh, had achieved just uh, you know just a year earlier, and I think that was incredibly gratifying for for South African football as well. And I think the players enjoyed it too. You know, it meant that they were not you know it meant that they were breaking down barriers and building bridges at the same time. Well, I was going to ask you, Mark, how is this team seen in South Africa? Is it looked back upon? You know, we. Two years later in France, you know, you have a side that, uh, you know, represents lots of um, or, is, or is seen to be representing, you know, various uh, communities and, and, and groups of people in, in multicultural France. Uh, obviously, a very different country and, and so on and so forth. But but is this team, is it seen as um, a bit of a, a, well, not a groundbreaker perhaps, but but quite affectionately and, and it did help with, with maybe building one or two bridges that you you mentioned football had already done previously. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and more and more so. You know, these players are absolute legends now. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I just look at the look at the lineup. You know, they're either massive television personalities, uh, pundits. You know, in the same way that sort of the creme de la creme of European football gravitates towards the TV set or onto the coaching bench. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of them uh, really, a lot of them went to play for some very good teams in in, uh, in Europe as well. Um, a lot of them had very, very good professional careers outside. A lot of them did very well financially. They, they're very much the reference point these days, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, they are remembered, uh, all of them, one and all of them for uh, for their role in the, in the 96. Uh, you know, if there's a reference to Andre Aron, so the goalkeeper who um, these days is an assistant coach at one of the one of the Premier League clubs or the goalkeeper coach. Every time there's a reference to him, it's, you know, 96 winning goalkeeper, Andre Aronser. <laughs> so, you know, they with each passing with each passing year, as, as South Africa fails to match that achievement, these guys become bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking down the lineup for the final. I, I think I'm right saying six of them had had careers in, in England. So Aronser, I mean, okay, he didn't play often, but he was at Fulham. Uh, Radebay, Fish, Tinkler, uh, Masinga and Bartlett. Uh, was yes. So, yeah, six, any of the others or those six? Well, Cesar uh, uh, Mutong played in in Spain in La Liga. So uh, Mark and Mark Fish, of course, you, you've mentioned. Linda Butelezi uh, was the uh, he was the strong midfield, the holding man. He was the one, who, the only one who didn't get an overseas transfer. Tinkler played at Eric Tinkler played at Barnsley for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came from Serie A. He was at Cagliari first. Um, John Mashweo played at Fenerbahce. Dr. Kamalo, actually, he actually had a trial at Aston Villa, but he was a little bit too old. He went and played eventually in, in Major League Soccer, and he was one of the so-called marquee players. MLS began, I think, in, 90, in 97, 98, and they, they, they took both Sean Bartlett, who later played for Charlton. Um, they took Bartlett and Dr. Kamalo across as the so-called marquee players for the new franchises. They, I, I think... Uh, Kamalo was at Columbus and um, and Bartlett was at Colorado, um, and uh, yes, uh, Phil Masinga played at Leeds initially with uh, with Radebe. Went on to play for Bari in, in Syria. Mark Williams, the, who scored both goals, came on as a sub. He was at he was at Wolves at the time, so um, a fair number of them went across the UK. A lot more um, percentage wise than we've had in subsequent national teams. In fact, if you sort of went through national sides maybe post-2008, uh, you find that half of locally based, half are foreign based. And these days, it's about 75% locally based and, and 25% foreign based. So less and less are, are going overseas and less and less are going to as um, 
as 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 high or as tough a leagues as Premier League, Serie A, La Liga, etc. So South Africa in the tournament, we mentioned they they won their opening game. They they would then beat Angola. They lost uh, to Egypt, but they went through top of the group and and into the quarters. Got a late winner um, after a late equaliser against Algeria, and in the semi final against Ghana. Um, and Ghana, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark. You know, Tony Aboa uh, and Abidi Pele. So they had some some big names in there themselves. South Africa brushed them aside 3-0 in the final. That man, Moshue, or forgive pronunciation, uh, gets a couple of goals in Bartlett. And did, did South Africa, did they sort of grow into the tournament? Was was belief then beginning to build? Because they it, it's looking at their results, I mean, that one in the semi-final is particularly impressive. Yeah, it, it did grow exponentially and it, it became more and more euphoric. That, that third group game, I might add, against Egypt, uh, which they lost, they had already qualified and they did use the, the rest of the squad. Sure, so yeah. Everybody, everybody got a game. So that was, you know, that was a, mm-hmm. a forgivable defeat, if you can use that phrase. The Algeria <laughs> game was pretty tough in the, in the quarterfinal. But, the key th- but, but South Africa had a lot of lucky breaks in this tournament, um, starting with Nigeria not arriving. Then for the semi-final, Abedi Pele had had the proverbials kicked out of him in the quarter-final match against, um, I think it was Zaire, DR Congo, down in Port Elizabeth. They were still called Zaire in those days. He'd absolutely been kicked to shreds. He went up late in the game, and um, he was out for the semi. He was he was cropped. And uh, without without Abedi, they were, you know, half the side. And Yeboa... Um, Yeboa had uh, a fairly contentious opportunity. Uh, I wouldn't call it a goal, but a fairly a ball was in the back of the net, uh, turned down as well pretty early on in the game. And then and then South Africa just had a golden period um, before, before halftime and immediately after, you know, as the second half started, boom, it was 2-0. And I think the, the, then the game was over. But um, it was a massive night. It was a Wednesday night, the semi-final. It was, mm-hmm. it was absolutely huge. And that stadium had never had as many people in it. And it was absolutely <laughs> heaving. I mean, and, 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 and the other lucky break, of course, was the, the other semi-final was between Tunisia, complete rank underdogs, and, uh, and Zambia, who South Africa had already mm. begun to establish a decent rivalry with and were beginning to get a little bit of an upper hand over. So there was the confidence that, you know, get through Ghana and this tournament is um, is as good as one. And then, of course, Tunisia won the, 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 the first semi earlier on in the day in Durban, fairly convincingly 4-2. And the other thing about that Tunisian side was they were going to the Olympics uh, later that year um, and had decided that their under-23 team, because that was the side for the Olympics, would go and represent them at the Nations Cup. So the Tunisian side that actually that got to the final in 96 achieved way Blimey. beyond uh, expectation. They, that was oh, actually yeah. their under-23 team. So so Tunisia winning earlier on in the day, and then South Africa, uh, everybody yeah. thought, okay, we'll just win this Ghana game, and this is uh, done and dusted. And Tunisia had, had lost to Ghana in the group stage as well. So I guess that sort of confirms mm-hmm. that, that that perception. Yeah, and and I mean they had um, they they really been under the radar, um, and they I, you know they, their draw was pretty lucky. They were um, the the only big game they had was against the Ivorians. Was the last group game which which saw them through. It wasn't a, a very good Ivorian side in those days, um, and a very poor French coach, if I remember as well. 
Uh, and then they had Gabon in the quarters as fairly, fairly easy assignments um, by Tunisian standards. And they got the better of the Zambians. That was, that was also key for them that day. Mm. So um, South Africa were sort of overwhelming favourites for, for the final, were they? Yes, absolutely. The final from and, and the final itself, as the game kicked off from minute one, was it was it was to my mind a matter of time. Is when is the goal going to come? You know, and there were one or two kind of moments of oops. You know, let's not get too cocky here. We could well, you know, this could well come back and bite us. But overwhelmingly, ahead of the game <clears throat> and during the game was you know. Um, when, when is the when is the official seal going to be put on the success by putting the ball in the back of the net? So we find ourselves in in the final then, and uh, against this unlikely Tunisian side, as you say, hugely impressive for them to get get to the final and, and South Africa itself. And we haven't mentioned Clive Barker yet, Mark. Um, I don't know much about him, although I'm. We'll come on to. Um, uh, his reaction, to, which I found quite intriguing, when the second South African goal went in, but how crucial was Clive Barker to to the whole operation? Yeah, Clive Barker is is, just, is a is a wonderful personality. Um, I, I'm a little bit partial towards Clive Barker because as a very young reporter in my very first season, he allowed me to sort of accompany his club side who won the league. I was I was working in Durban in those days. It was my first newspaper job, and the local football team, which he was the coach of. Were, were winning the league for the very first time. And, um, you know, I, I was the one reporter on the on the plane and on the bus who was able to travel and, uh, and, and towards, you know, as the season got on a little bit, I got a bit more access and occasionally I'd, I'd be allowed to the change room before the start of the game and certainly afterwards. And, and had uh, so, so I'm a little partial uh, towards Clive Barker. He, he was no great football coach, um, and he'll be the first to admit that. He's not a man of tactics. Uh, he'd be absolutely bored by Jose Mourinho or uh, you know, <laughs> we all, Mark? Pep Guardiola. <laughs> yeah, just in terms of uh, you know of the of the study of the game. He he, sure. he was all about motivation, and um, I mean, he certainly had an eye for a good player, and he could put a team together. And then, but all the players will tell you, you know, they pretty much sort of figured out the tactics a little bit as they went along themselves. And Barker was just the most amazing motivator. And he's got a wonderful story too. Uh, um, you know, he, he, he was a footballer in South Africa. He, he, he got an injury. Uh, in those days, when he was a footballer in the in the sixties, I mean, it was a part time. It wasn't, you know, it was semi pro stuff. It, always, it, it was always really semi pro stuff in the, in the white mm-hmm. league right until until the late seventies. Um, he got an injury in his early days. He was a taxi driver. He battled a little bit for work. He did a bit of football coaching on the side, and then he and then he was asked to coach a black team in the deep dark days of apartheid, where. Um, you know, whites needed a permit to go into the black areas. And so he would sneak in there for training sessions. Oftentimes he couldn't even go to his own team's games because, you know, it was there, it was too obvious. There was obviously a police presence at games and he would likely have been reported for being there and someone would have come up and said, where's your permits? And and so um, he, and he tells the most, he's he's the most fabulous record too. He tells these most incredible stories about the apartheid days when, you know, he, he did travel with a side to some township, and in those days, the hotels, of course, uh, they were all segregated, and he'd have to sleep in the bus um, because he was, you know, he was white. He was not allowed into the black hotel. I mean, can you imagine? You know, can you imagine telling those stories today? Um, but yeah. but um, he, he's really so he really worked his way through the ranks, and he was uh, he was you know 
the, he was very, very popular with uh, with spectators, and uh, he was a his strength really was man motivation and and just geeing everybody up. And uh, I I've, I think there's there's no one in the South African football community to this day who would have a who would have a bad word about uh, about Clive Barker, who who was coaching until. You know, just past his seventieth birthday, and he's you know he's still going strong, um, although no longer <laughs> coaching, but he's still very much a huge figure in this country. He seems like the ideal man to have been in charge of that side, as it, as it proved. Yeah, to absolutely, be. it's absolutely a man for the man for the occasion. Because uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure the modern day coach would have worked in '96. You know, '96 was was a there, were, there was a lot mm-hmm. lot more about the whole occasion than just football and, yeah. and, and and you know making sure that you that you that you block tackled or that you you know you pressed high or, or whatever the, the the tactic of the day was i mean it was it was a, it was a lot more than that and, and bach was the right man to be able to he had an understanding of the sense of the occasion you know the kind of guy who kit man you know mandela went to the went to the yeah, hotel yeah. the night before and he could have a little joke with mandela and sort of you know he could almost kid him a little bit. He he had that uh, he had that license to do that and um, and the cheek to do it as well and and the ability to carry it off. So um, he, he he really was uh, was the right man for the. I mean, I don't, he wouldn't work today. He wouldn't work today at all. But I think in the context of what you're saying, especially with his coaching CV, he was very qualified in in at that time in the context of it all. You know what? What an amazing story! His own story is, and, and to be able to to take this team into this tournament, you know, and obviously it has a, has a fairy tale ending. But but the final itself, um, it, it, the two goals were scored sort of deep into the second half. I mean, what, what, sure, sure, South Africa must have been confident then, as you've as you've sort of alluded to there with this young Tunisian side and so on. But then with the it, with this sort of the the context of everything. Were there still a few nerves going into the final, or were everyone fairly was everybody fairly confident? No, I think there were a, f- a few nerves, but um, you know, it, as I said earlier, I think it was more a sense of you know when are we going to get this job done rather than are we going to get the job done, um, mm. and 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 that's how it proved. I mean, you know, Tunisia's approach um, in the game was very much uh, looking for opportunities on the counter attack and. Um, and they had very few chances, um, so there was never really. It was, you know, it, it, the only sense of angst I think really was as as the game wore on. You know, it was. Yeah. I mean, it got to. It was past seventy minutes. It was still nil nil, and yeah. um, and I think it was sort of you know, come on, you know, when are we going to get on with this now? You know, we're surely not going <laughs> to to win this an extra time. You know. Yeah, but of and course, the goal the goals, itself, when it does yeah. come, it's one of those. It's one of those great goals where it's almost scored twice. Yeah, <laughs> it, it looks like it's gone in, and then finally it is put in, and so you get that. Uh, you have a, the crowd gets up a little dip, and then they're up again, and somehow the noise is even louder, and, and it, you know it's that much greater for, for for the anticipation of you having thought it's gone in, and it actually hasn't. Hmm. Yeah, and you know it's it's a very symbolic goal too. Uh, with hindsight, it's it's Doctor Kamalo, the sort of the conductor of the orchestra, the you know the midfield maestro with all his trickery, taking the taking the set piece as that kind of player does. You know, it's it's Mark Fish, the sort of defensive labourer with a you know big strong upper body uh, bully boy gets gets in there and gets the little flick on, and then it's Eric Tinkler, the the real midfield workhorse, uh, not not the greatest uh, player 
terms of skills, but with huge heart and uh, and motivation, being at the back post um, where that kind of player normally does lurk because he's, you know, that's probably the best place for someone like that who's not strong enough to compete elsewhere or, or, or doesn't have the guile to compete elsewhere. And he gets the header in, it's against the crossbar. And then it's picked up by Sizwe Mutong, who was the right back. And he, 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 you know, being where he was, even though it was a set piece, was characteristic of the way he played because he probably spent more time in the opponent's half than he did in his own half as a marauding right back. He really was a superb, superb footballer. And I think the fact that he he had the final assist and just chipped it in there. And then Mark Williams heads it, uh, uh, gets above a crowd of players and heads it in. And Williams was your sort of workman-like centre forward. He'd come on as a he'd come on as a substitute. He, he and, and you know he he scored both goals. He's known in South Africa today. He's a TV pundit, as nation builder. So they call him. You know, um, when they crossed him at a game, they said, "Well, here's let's hear what nation builder has to say." So those two <laughs> goals he scored That's give nice. you give you some some indication of the symbolism. But uh, he was a real grafter, Mark I, Williams. I, I, you know, the, a finisher, a, a poacher, a predator, and. Um, and 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 he cried, and he he tells the story often. He cried when he was left out of the starting lineup. Phil Masinga got his place in the starting line. I think he lost his place after the quarterfinals, and uh, he cried the night before when Barker told him the, the starting lineup. Um, mm. And the sense of irony then of you know of becoming the hero of the day. Mm. And the, the so this is where I want to talk about Clive Barker's reaction. Uh, to the second goal now, quite clearly, when the first one goes in, barring an absolute disaster, South Africa have have, have got one hand on the trophy, and then straight away uh, after the first goal, the second goal comes, and it really does it, it with beyond doubt. Now there's only sort of fifteen minutes left. They're the superior side. They've got the home crowd behind them. It really is. It puts it to bed. And the camera cuts to Clive Barker on on the bench. And the coaching staff are kind of celebrating. And he almost is, it's it's like he's sort of trying to maybe appeal for a bit of calm. And one of his coaching staff seems to try and almost put his arm around him and say, Clive, it, yes. it, it, it's okay. You can you can enjoy this. You yes. can have a little celebration. And then he kind of goes, oh, yeah, and lifts, puts his hands in the air, which I thought was quite amusing. Yeah, he, he turns he turns, to the, he turns to the crowd behind him and sort of That's right. finally pumps his fists. But it, it took a while. And, and it's a very, a very unusual, unusual response from Clive Barker. The, fa- the famous, I mean, and Clive Barker in Celebrations deserves a quick little little side story. In the next game after the Nations Cup for South Africa was against Brazil. Brazil were brought out, um, mm. I think, on one of those infamous Nike tours already um, to to play South Africa. Um, that. Zagalo was the coach at the time, and he was building a team towards the Olympics as well. You'll remember that Brazil had also had a had the idea of um, filling the side up with that under twenty threes, and they had the likes of uh, I think Bobeto was the overage player, but they had Rivaldo and mm. all sorts of wonderful, wonderful footballers. They came to South Africa, I think, a month after we won the Nations Cup, maybe two months after. And when South Africa went two nil ahead just before half time, Clive Barker went on the on the famous. Um, little run with his hands spread out like he was taking off like a bird, sort of a bird <laughs> about to go into flight. And, and um, at that time, unbeknown to anybody, obviously uh, gave Zagalo the absolute heebie-jeebies. He was furious. And so when Brazil came back to win that game and won it 3-2, 
in the dying stages and, you know, save themselves this massive embarrassment of losing mm-hmm. to an African side, Zagalo taunted Barker by heading off and doing exactly the same thing and then <laughs> kept that celebration routine right through um, the rest of his tenure and, <laughs> and including his return to the side in 98 when, um, or, or sorry, uh, uh, sorry, yes, he kept it, he, he kept it yeah, right, right through. Um, and, and he became quite famous for the celebration of sort of setting off as if he was a bird about to take off. But he, he'd stolen that from Clive Barker um, in a moment of fury. Yeah, Barker's true legacy, perhaps one could. <laughs> yes, well, it's probably it's probably the thing he internationally could claim uh, you know massive uh, infamy for that for sure. My goodness, we should maybe describe that second goal. So it's um, uh, Bukadida is, is dispossessed. And a ball slipped through to Williams, who, who hits it very early. And uh, Shokri Alouard sort of isn't set, and the ball sort of goes under his left hand. But it, it is, again, it's sort of, it's the classic of that sort of goal that, that just sort of somehow appears. You know, it, it's, which, which I, I think when you get two goals in quick, succe- quick succession, the second one is often sort of slightly from nowhere. Um, it, it, you know, it's as if it's one goal that's worth two. Um, but it, yeah. you know, an incredibly sort of smart bit of finishing to hit it as early. And it's not that near the corner, but it's the fact he's taken it early that, that, that beats mm-hmm. the keeper. Yeah. It's it's probably better remembered here in South Africa for the fact that Dr. Kamala actually won a tackle in midfield because he he he, he and he was ribbed about that incessantly for years afterwards, and particularly <laughs> by Clive Barker, about the fact that, you know, Doc, you only you only tackled once in your whole career, <laughs> but you set up the goal that won us you know, that basically secured for us the nation's cup. Um but but he, he laid it off beautifully. I mean that that was the quality of Kamala. He he was an outstanding footballer. He would have been a top quality Premier League footballer had he been spotted at the right time and had he come, you know, had he had he lived in the right era, to be fair. Mm-hmm. He just had the most immense uh the most outstanding control of the ball at his feet, you know, and um, work ethic, unfortunately, didn't go with that. And, you know, maybe if he was a kid from from today's generation and had been perhaps um, taught and coached a little differently and, and been able to use that natural ability, he would have been absolutely massive. But uh, um, it's 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 probably better known by, well, as, as Jonathan points out, you know, as a, as a good finish by Williams, it's better known in this country as Kamalo's one and only midfield tackle. You know? <laughs> Love that. So, Mark, looking back at this team, obviously there's, we mentioned earlier great affection that perhaps helped and uh, take down a few boundaries and, and so on. Is there is there any regret that that um, that South African football didn't perhaps kick on as much as one might have hoped at the time? You know, it remains their only Nations Cup win, of course. Yeah, absolutely massive regret. And I think, uh, you know, you throw in 2010, you know, hosting the World Cup and you look at us 10 years on, we're number 75 in the world, you know. It's, um, it's, it's, it's incredibly disappointing. We've, we've got the infrastructure. Um, we've got a decent league. There's a, there's a fair deal of money in it. You, you don't really need to go and play in Europe if you're, a, if you're a, a, a high-quality young South African footballer these days. You can earn a very good living staying at home. Certainly, it's not worth your while going to Portugal or Belgium or Switzerland. Um, you could earn more in the UK and in France and the Bundesliga, for example. But uh, but there are not too many places where it's worth your while leaving home. So everything is in place, but we just do not seem to be able to do it at national team level. We've 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 had a series of done coaches to add. I think there's been a generational trough here and there where the team 
has um, certainly not had as much talent as we have had in, 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 in other generations. And, and increasingly, everybody lives in the shadow of the 96 team. Hmm. Well, Mark, it's just, just despite that regret, it's been a pleasure going back and, uh, and talking about that, that the glory, I suppose you would say, of South African football and hearing all about that. So thank you very much indeed for, for joining us on the podcast and, and telling us all about that. Cheers. Thank you. And uh, for more stories like that, of course, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. So there we are. So thanks again, Mark. And thank you, Jonathan. We'll see you next week. Nice one. This was a Stakhanov production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.